You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Fred Lynn was the first player in Major League Baseball history to win the Rookie of the Year and Most Valuable Player Awards in the same season when he did it in 1975. He hit 331, which was second in the American League to Rod Carew. Led the league in doubles, runs scored, and slugging percentage, and he won a gold glove. His career war was 50.2, which means that his team won 50 more games with him in the lineup than they would have with an average player at his position. Lynn played 17 years in Major League Baseball, all but one in the American League. In 1983, he hit the first Grand Slam in All-Star Game history and the 50th anniversary of the Midsummer Classic. Played at USC for legendary coach Rod Dato. The Trojans won national championships all three years. He was a Trojan. So, Fred, welcome to Sports Connections. Thank you very much. Well, let's let's start with your college days. Did winning the national championship ever become old hat for you? <laughs> no, you know, actually, um, when I first got there as a freshman, um, that was only the second year of freshmen were allowed allowed to play varsity baseball. So I looked at our schedule and I noticed at the bottom of the schedule, it said Omaha. And it had the dates that uh, the College of World Series was going to be playing. I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's on our schedule. So <laughs> there were very high expectations and coach wanted to let the parents know that's where we are going. So make sure you take your vacation at that time. So winning was expected. Um, was it old hat? No, because each year everybody was gunning for us and it became a little bit tougher each year that we went there, but it, uh, it was so much fun. Uh, it was just a great experience uh, playing for Rod and University of Southern California. Now, I was going to ask you about Coach Dato. He, he was one of the most successful college ba- baseball coaches of all time. Why do you think that is? It's pretty simple, really. Um, we practiced like it was the seventh game of uh, the championship at, at Omaha. Uh, our practices were very intense, and he stressed uh, fundamentally sound baseball, which means we, when we got into big games, we were so well prepared and coached that we never beat ourselves. The other teams uh, found ways to beat themselves, but we never did. We made it extremely difficult for teams to beat us. And we just didn't make any mistakes, mental mistakes. And here, I'll give you an example of why we were so tough. Um, Coach had a fine book at the end of the dugout. And our our goal each game was to play a perfect game. Well, you would think winning three national championships in three years, we would have played a perfect game. But no, that never happened. Here's the reason why. Uh, Coach was just, he was really against mental mistakes. Uh, you know, not knowing the, how many outs there were, the pitch count, you know, a pitcher giving up an 0-2 base hit, uh, things like that. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what, what constitutes a mental mistake? Well, here's a ground ball to our All-American shortstop, Roy, Roy Smalley. Takes a bad hop, right? Eats him up. And it, it's, it's an error, but coach says, Tiger, Tiger, you've got to anticipate that bad hop. <laughs> So you've got to get yourself in position, make sure you're ready for that bad hop. So <laughs> that's the way he coached. And it, like I said, it was very intense in practices. So in game time, uh, we just felt very relaxed in any uh, tight situation because we'd already practiced it. 
but Fred, that seems so simple. If it was that simple that all you had to do is, is practice um, like it was the final game, why didn't more teams do that? Why, why were you guys the only ones to have that mindset? Because if, if, if coach stood behind you, say you're pitching BP, and a lot of times he would stand right behind the pitcher and watch him throw. Well, you can imagine a 19-year-old kid and coach is right behind you. This is Coach Rod Dato of the University of Southern California standing there watching you. So he did that on purpose. He wanted you to feel the pressure, okay? And you did. Uh, if, he, you know, if you're feeling ground balls, and he was a middle infielder, so his infield guys, I mean, they took a billion ground balls. And he'd stand right behind them or hit them to them. And the, the pressure was intense so that, you know, he, he was able to duplicate the pressure that you would feel in an impactful game in practice. Well, most coaches can't do that because they're not him. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the other interesting things, and, and obviously you and I have spoken before uh, about Coach Dato, that he called everybody Tiger. What, why do you think he did that? That was a great gimmick. Uh, when you think about it, how many uh, young men that uh, Coach Dato would meet? And I remember being a recruit, and I was going to play football, but the first time I was went to see him at the baseball diamond, uh, Dave King was on the team and uh, Steve Busby, and there's some major leaguers that are already there. So um, he's, he's, he's on the field, and there's a chain link fence, and he'd stick his little fingers between the fence. Hey, Tiger, Tiger, good to see you. Hey, I'm glad you're going to be a Trojan. And you felt like, oh, he called me Tiger. <laughs> it, but, you know, like I said, he didn't know how he was. He, he, you know, you see somebody and you see your name recognition's not quite there. When he knew you, yeah, hey, Freddie, nice, nice to see you again. But if he wasn't quite sure, hey, Tiger, Tiger, hey, nice to see you again. And it was a good way to break the ice because, you know, Tiger is, you know, when, when you're an athlete, Tiger means ferocity and, and, you know, all the things that go with that makes you think, Hey, he really thinks highly of me. And, it, and before, you know, before you recognize that he calls everybody tiger, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I was 18 when I was being recruited and yeah, when coach calls you tiger, he's just felt, it's like a term of endearment. Oh, wow. You know, he called me tiger. So I'm he must like me. <laughs> yeah. Now what, what did you take with you from USC that helped you in Major League Baseball other than knowing how to win championships? Um, I was fundamentally sound. I, I knew how to play the game. You know, we played the game like major leaguers. Uh, we took infield like the major leaguers used to, I'm going to say used to, were actually pitchers who would hit fly balls. You'd have a pitcher between first and home, and he'd hit fly balls over the shortstop's head to the outfield and and on the third baseline they would hit uh, fly balls to the guys in right field and this was how the major league uh, teams used to do it well we copied them and we we conducted ourselves like major league players right so when you drafted a usc uh, player coached by rod dato you might not have the best player in the world but you were going to have a fundamentally sound player who was always in the game. He was going to give you the best effort and he knew how to play the game. So you never had to worry. Um, I don't believe, I know I, I never received any coaching that helped me one little bit in the minor leagues. I'd already had it. 
I, I knew how to do those things. So guys or managers would see you and they just let you go. You know, they didn't have to tell you how to play the game. And so there were lots of us that got to the big leagues. And that's one of the reasons why. And I will say this about my amateur career. One of the things that I was able to do by playing at USC, I was able to represent um, our country um, overseas playing for the United States. Uh, after my first year uh, as a freshman, we won the College World Series. And then we tried out for the Pan Am team. Okay, the Pan Am Games were like the Olympics for the Americas. And uh, three Trojans uh, made that team. And so we represented the U.S. down in Cali, Colombia. And, of course, Cuba's the, the, the big uh, dominant uh, player then because they had basically professionals and guys that are in their 30s playing against amateurs. But I was able to do that three summers. Uh, this, the next year I went to Japan uh, Rod organized the first ever USA versus Japanese college all-stars. And we played in Japan and we played where their major league teams play. So that's another experience that I got to have. And then the next year, the Japanese all-stars came to the U.S. and we played at Dodger Stadium and Angel Stadium. So these experiences, uh, along with playing at USC, made me... <laughs> a player that has seen everything that you could possibly see at that level. I played in front of 40 and 50,000 people. Um, most uh, amateur athletes never got that opportunity. In fact, I will tell you this, playing at Southern Cal, we would play the Dodgers in spring training and right before they started the season in Dodger Stadium. There'd be 55,000 people there, 55,000 to see the Trojans play the Dodgers. Uh, and their frontline guys were playing our frontline guys, and it was a blast. <laughs> so how does that help me be a, a major league player? Well, <laughs> that's a pretty good pedigree, to be, if you ask me. And to be perfectly honest, when I won those awards my first year, um, it wasn't expected, but it wasn't a surprise because of all the things that I was able to achieve as an amateur. And that's because I went to SC and played for Rod. Yeah. Now I'll get back to those awards in a second, but I want to talk about the draft as a West coast guy, you know, from the Los Angeles area played at USC. What was your reaction of being drafted clear across the country by the Boston Red Sox? Uh, shocked. Um, to be honest with you, I was supposed to be a Dodger. Um, Coach had uh, ties to the O'Malley's and, and they knew Tommy Lasorda very well, uh, Campanis. Uh, so it, it was a shocker. Um, number one, that I went in the second round uh, because there weren't 40 guys better than me in the country. There just weren't. Um, so I think uh, when the Red Sox drafted me, I'd never seen a Red Sox scout before. Uh, I knew a lot of them because, you know, even in high school, I was being scouted. So it was a complete shock. I talked to coach about it because I was a junior. I had another year of eligibility to play at Southern Cal. Uh, but I, you know, I'd, I'd already done everything. And I said, coach, you know, what do you think about, uh, he says, well, the Red Sox are a good organization. Uh, you have nothing left to prove here. You know, I, I and so he said, you know, go ahead and, and go for it. And even though he looked at me, he says, you're not the 41st player pick. You shouldn't have been that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's the reason I signed with the Sox, because Coach said, yeah, wait, go ahead and do it. Now, 
um, that was in the 73 draft and you played the rest of 73 and, and part of 74 in the minor leagues. And then you made your debut, uh, September call up, I believe in, in 74, were you expecting to climb the, the system as quickly as you did? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I, I was in double A and Jimmy Rice and I were teammates. That's where we first met. And I was only in, in, in double A for about a month and a half. And both Jimmy and I got called up uh, to AAA because they were in the playoffs and we won the AAA World Series. And I said, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. You know, I just won the uh, College World Series in the beginning of 73. And then so we won the AAA World Series. And I expected to be called up right now. Uh, I mean, I, I saw AAA at the highest level just briefly, but I, I excelled right away. And I think I was thinking, you know, from the 74 season to start, Jimmy and I are starting in, in AAA. Ah, this is not right. Um, let's go. I'm ready to go. And so when I got called up in September, uh, DJ Daryl Johnson, he wasn't even playing me. And I was like, God, oh, this is agony. <laughs> I never sat on the bench in my life. And <clears throat> when they finally put me in, I, I did pretty well. But uh, yeah, I, I expected to be called up sooner. Um, you know, I, no one knew who I was, to be honest with you. It's not like today. If if I had done all those things in as an amateur, everybody in the country would have known who I was. Uh, there's no escaping that because of the media. But then no one knew except for a handful of people. <laughs> so they, they they made you prove your, your worth, um, you know, especially young guys. You had to play games and they had to see you play. And once they saw you play enough games, then they, that's when they called you up. Yeah. Now, um, if someone had told you, well, let me ask you, let me say this before. Fred, there's a big difference between arrogance and confidence. To me, arrogance is thinking more of yourself than you should. Confidence is understanding your abilities. I sense a tremendous amount of confidence in your abilities. Looking back now, many years later, you were a confident guy and you expected to do well. So when you did, it wasn't a surprise. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Um, every step of the ladder as an athlete, um, you, you kind of grade yourself, you know, other people will grade you, but I just used to grade myself. And, uh, I was good in every sport, to be honest with you. But baseball, I was always either the best player or like in that conversation at every level. And that was not changing as I was getting older. So I'm thinking, well, OK, you know, I, 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 I'm playing with older guys since I was 16. I was playing guys in their 20s. So that was no nothing new for me either. Um so all those things you, you just say, oh, I'm very shy. I never said anything. Really? <laughs> I never said anything unless you asked me. But yeah, I had an inner confidence. There's no question that I felt like I, I should do well. I should help my team win. Um, and, and that's the way I approached uh, every sport that I ever played. Expected to do well. And I expected to play well and have my team win. That's, that's how I uh, entered any contest that I ever played. Now, I, I, I had planned to ask you if someone had told you before the 75 season that you would be rookie of the year and MVP in the same season, what would you have said? I think I, I, think I know the answer. You would have said, yeah, okay. 
<laughs> yeah, right? it's it's it had never been done before, but uh, I had done things like I say as an amateur that no one had done before. They just didn't know that I did it. Um, now I never played any sport to win awards. To be honest with you, I they they came my way, but that's not why I played. I played because. I love playing sports and I love the team aspect and I loved my helping my team win. And that's when I went into the 75 season and it wasn't just me as a rookie. You got Jimmy Rice and Rick Burleson and, and Cecil Cooper's only been there a couple of years. And, and Dwight Evans has been there a year. We're all like 23 years old, 22 years old. So it wasn't just me, uh, which was great for me because I was very shy. And so it wasn't the focus wasn't just on me. And to win those awards at the end, yeah, that was okay. But I was, I was crushed because we didn't win. Uh, you know, I, I'd never lost the championship game before. So, you know, getting to the World Series in 75 and getting to game seven, I'm thinking, all right, this is exactly where I should be. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I was trained to do. And to actually lose a championship game was foreign to me and it never happened so i i just kind of remember sitting there in a in amazement really because this this is not right <laughs> uh, so i you know i i, I thought about it uh, well my whole life to be honest um I, I i recognized some of the some of the cool things that i was able to accomplish but the things that stand out in my mind for my career are the times we were so close and yet we didn't win. Uh, those things that I still dream about them. Um, the 78 playoff game uh, in 82, we lost uh, when I was with the angels. Uh, those things haunt me because those things weren't supposed to happen. I want to talk about the 1975 world series. There are a lot of people and, and I certainly don't disagree with them. Say that's the, the best world series not talking about the result, <laughs> the end result, just the back and forth nature of it. Uh, two great teams. That was the best World Series ever. Other than the fact that you didn't win, what are some of the memories that you carry from that World Series? Brought up a great point. Uh, you know, there was so many great players on the field for both teams. Um, and what what was really great about the 75 Series is that baseball was kind of on the brink a little bit. Uh, football was really dominating uh, the airways and, you know, we needed some a spark and that gave baseball a spark because everyone was watching, especially game six. Uh, MLB network voted game six, the best game ever played. Yeah. <laughs> Period. So, yeah. And to be a part of that uh, looking, you know, back on it now was just a great experience. In fact, Books have been written about one game, game six, a whole book. Uh, so it was when you're going through it, you know, it's very, very fast. It happens very quickly and you, you don't have time to think about, you know, oh, this is cool. And I was only a rookie. Um, but looking back on it, yeah, it was a great experience. And, you know, even though we didn't win, everybody remembers it. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody remembers Carlton Fisk and, you know, hitting the game winner in game six and Bernie Carbo's pinch hit Homer, um, me running into the wall. Uh, there's just so many things that happened during the series. Um, 
that uh, I, I recall fondly. In fact, when I get back with my mates, uh, you know, we, we, we go right back into it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, if we have a 75 reunion team, we, we've done that a couple of times. Uh, we just all get together. We just, we just hash it out and it, it's, it's great fun. There, there's two specific things I want to ask you about. First, where were you uh, when Carlton Fisk hit that home run uh, bottom of the 11th, if I'm not mistaken, um, maybe, maybe later, but in the extra innings, to win that World Series, were were you on base? Were you where were you in that situation? Well, the game was side six six, and and it's the bottom of the twelfth. Okay. <clears throat> and Pat Darcy was pitching. This is his, I think, third inning. I, I could I didn't remember that till we did a, a show on it for MLB. Okay. And he he'd throw perfect innings, and a lot of ground outs. He had a good sinker, and so Pudge, I'm on deck. I'm I'm hit behind Pudge. And so we're talking on deck, watching him warm up. And he says, Freddie, I'm going to hit one off the wall. You drive me in. And I said, that sounds like a plan to me. And <laughs> so Darcy threw a, a sinker down and in. Well, Pudge is a dead low ball hitter. And uh, he cut it off. And I, I'm on deck. So I'm leaning. I'm right by the, the baseline. I could see it uh, perfectly. And it, it just hooks inside the foul pole. Uh, and the place went bonkers. Oh, yeah. And, and uh so I had a real good view of it. And I, I told him as he came back, he said, hey, what happened to the part of me driving you in? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that I was mean, a great moment in history. That's for sure. Now, obviously, what people remember is him jumping and trying to use the body English to, to keep it fair. Were you doing the same thing in the on-deck circle? No, I saw it. You know, he was pudge. He's, that's, he's, he's being pudge. Um, it, it got out of there so fast. It didn't have time. You know, I mean, it was a bullet and I, I just kind of leaned and I jumped up too, uh, like he did, but, uh, yeah, I had a perfect view of it. If I had had a camera, a GoPro on my helmet, you know, you could, you would have had a great view. Yeah. For <laughs> I'm surprised. Sure. I'm surprised they don't do that now. Let's have a GoPro on a guy's helmet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be great. Uh, maybe we need to cop, call Rob Manfred and suggest that that would be a good way to get the fans. <laughs> get the fans back interested and stuff. The other thing I want to uh, uh, ask you about, and I think it was Bernie Carbo, but somebody slid into third base. Pete Rose was playing third base for the, for the Reds. And it was game seven, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, the guy, the guy was safe and he stood up and supposedly Pete Rose said, this is fun, isn't it? <laughs> Did, have you heard that story? And is it true? Yeah, that was part of game six. Oh, that was yeah, six. Okay. and I, I can't remember. Yeah, that's right. And, and Pete did say that. Um, I wasn't involved with the play, but you know he's a veteran player, so he'd been around the block. Yeah, and and most of their team. In fact, I don't even know if they had any rookies. Um, but uh, they, they were a veteran club, and you know they had experience of a lot of baseball. Uh, our side had not, except for Stremski and and Petroselli. Um, and maybe Louis, most of us were just young guys and never been there before. So, uh, yeah, he did say that. And I, I remember reading about it. I said, wow, that's, I, I never thought of it. You know, I'm, I'm not thinking how fun it is. I'm trying to beat your butt. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but yeah, he did say that. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it later. Uh, he said, yeah, this is great fun. I said, wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was more fun looking back than it was at the time, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it was it was nerve wracking. Although I, I never got nervous in, when I was playing, but it, you know, you're you're focused on one goal to win, and and 
yeah, it's fun when you win. It's it's not so much when you don't. I want to talk about one specific game, probably not a significant game in the in the grand scheme of things in your 17 years. But one game in Detroit, you had three home runs, 10 RBIs, 18 total bases. So here's my question. What did you have for your pregame meal? <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I had uh, had a 20-game hitting streak snapped the night before. And uh, Mickey Lolich, uh, tough lefty for those guys. And it's the first time I'd ever seen him. So I, I got up early. Um, I, I didn't sleep very well. And I was walking the streets of Detroit, which is probably not a good idea. But I was a rookie, didn't know. And just kind of gathering myself. And, and I, I stopped at some diner and, and had breakfast. But really, really early. I, got, I went to the ballpark early. Um, and took some extra BP. Dwight Evans was thrown, I remember. And so I just kind of spent the day at the ballpark. To be honest with you, there wasn't a whole lot to do in Detroit in, in those days. And so I was ready for the game, but I'd never faced Joe Coleman before. And uh, I, I've seen the tape of the balls I hit. And he hung me a couple breaking balls. And, geez, I hit one off of the roof, the light tower, the second one. And I was like, whoa. Reggie Jackson but, territory, huh? Yeah, that's exactly right. Kind of where he hit his. But I, I just told my wife the other day, because um, the anniversary of those three home runs was in June. And the one I hit uh, for a triple off the left field fence, I mean, I forget who threw it, but it was a sinker. It was down and away. And I hit a, <laughs> it was really a good piece of hitting because it was a good pitch for a pitcher's pitch. And I just hit a rocket off the left field uh, fence. Um, I'm thinking, well, that's pretty good plate coverage right there. And so, yeah, that was a, just a wild night. I mean, I had hit three home runs in a game since uh, my last year of Little League. <laughs> so it was one of those quirky things. There were guys on base every time I came up. The only out I made, I lined out. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, just one of those magical nights just happened to happen my first year. Now, I was, I was telling my wife this morning that when I was, uh, you know, she asked who I was going to interview today, and I mentioned you, and I said, I remember early on being a big Fred Lynn fan. First of all, I lived in New York and hated the Yankees, so it was easy to root for the Red Sox. Um, you know, having grown up in Kansas City and moving there uh, in, in junior high, so I was rooting for the Red Sox anyway, and you made the game so effortless. You made it look effortless. Was it as easy? Was it as effortless as you made it look? I think, uh, you know, I, I think probably most of the people uh, relate that to my defensive play. Um, you know, hitting, I had a, a real long swing, um, but I could get the bat through the hitting area very quickly. So that kind of swing, when, when a guy does it right, it looks really good. Uh, because it's a long fluid swing you see short compact swings and they you know, they look choppy but mine did not but when I play defense I think that's where people remember me making it look easy um, and again because I play multiple sports uh, growing up in Southern California as most of us did I played basketball as a point guard so you learned how to run backwards you know you were in footwork and then I was a when I played football I was a wide receiver and a defensive back. So you learn all these drills for footwork. And so, and I learned how to track uh, the, the correct route to a, a pass or intercept a pass or intercept a runner. 
Um, so I learned all these things in other sports and it was a tremendous advantage uh, to me to play center because now I can use all those skills and I don't have to think about when the ball's hit, I already know how to take the, the proper route to the ball. Um, I know which side of the, of, of my body to turn to the ball. Um, these are all things that you learn because you played other sports. No one ever had to teach me how to do it. I just was able to do it. And so when I got to say like Fenway, which there's lots of unique aspects about playing defense there, I, th I fit right in. It was just second nature for me to be able to do those things because I was a multi-sport athlete. Uh, today's guys, you know, they, they, <laughs> they're, they're playing one sport, you know, 12 months a year. And, and that's why some of them burn out. That's why you hear guys have a Tommy John sur surgery when they're 16. Um, you know, they just, they just overdo it. And when you play multiple sports, you give your body a chance to, to rest in for one particular aspect, like throwing, you know, I, I didn't throw baseball until the next baseball season. So those are, those are the things that help me uh, be graceful, if you will, uh, and, and make it look easier than it actually was. Royals Hall of Famer George Brett likes to say, when somebody's going through a slump, don't try harder, try easier mm -hmm. to take, um, you know, just not to overexert. Because if you try harder, you're going to tense up. You're not going to relax. And, and one of the keys is relaxation. Do you agree with that theory? No, absolutely. Um, that's why some guys were able to perform in crunch time because they can relax their body. Um, if, if anybody who's ever played golf, um, if you get tension in your hands and forearms, you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. all kinds of bad things are going to happen. Well, the same thing applies as a hitter. Uh, if you're a pitcher, if you have any tension in your forearm, you're going to hang a breaking ball. You're not going to get the spin rate. Uh, you're not going to be able to control your fastball. Uh, as a hitter, if you don't relax your hands, you can't get your hands to react through the, through the hitting zone. Um, so the key to performing under pressure is to be able to relax. And that's what really separates uh, guys. And you say, well, how did that one guy do it in game seven? Well, he was able to relax while the other guys couldn't. Yeah. Well, Fred, what was your reaction to the trade in the offseason following the 1980 season? Did that shock you? Uh, were you prepared for it? How, what was your reaction? Well, we had some uh, uh, <laughs> we had some issues going into the '81 season. You know, in in 1980, there were Carlton Fisk, Rick Burleson, and I. All our contracts were come up, and everybody in the organization was saying, "Oh, these guys want to sign for this. They want to go here. They want to go where the money is." Da 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 da. da. Well, there was a lot of rhetoric going on that none of it was true. But yeah. back in those days. Uh, we had pretty much a confrontational uh, and adversarial relationship with the ownership because they didn't like us much. We were, you know, we were trying to fight for free agency and all those kinds of things were happening. Anyway, long story short, um, I was not surprised that it happened because uh, Rick Burleson was traded before I was uh, and, and they sent uh, Carlton Fisk and my contracts out late. Um, so we were going to be declared free agents I agreed to a trade to the Angels, uh, so it was not unexpected. Uh, I didn't want to go anywhere else. I wanted to play uh, with the Red Sox my whole career. 
it just didn't work out that way. It was just the timing um, playing in, in that era. If it, if I were playing with the Sox now, it would have never happened. Uh, you know, I'd have finished my career there or earlier, like, yes, um, before free agency. So it just, there's a confluence of things that were happening that really were not in my control. Um, but yeah, it was, it was different, you know, going from the East coast back to the West coast again. Um, I, I love my teammates and, and when I played for the angels, but uh, you know, I, there was a part of me missing, you know, cause I was a Red Sox guy, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I grew up with those guys. Yeah. Even though you were from, you know, the Los Angeles area and you were going back home, home had changed, hadn't it? Yes. Yeah. Especially, you know, you get used to, one thing like the fans on the East coast, especially in New York and Boston, um, you know, that they, they, they come early and stay late, you know, not so much. in so SoCal, <laughs> they, they come late and leave early. Um, so, you know, there was in, well, the weather was good though. I, I will say that. Uh, but it was just a different atmosphere. No question. Um, we had to be really good uh, in Southern California to get the people to come out. And not so much in the East. They came out because they love baseball. You had to win uh, in in LA area, uh, and we did. We had a good team. We had a star-studded team, so we packed the house, and it was fun to play in front of fifty-five thousand instead of thirty thousand. But um, it was just a, a just different. That's you know, East Coast West Coast. It's a, it's a different vibe. You talk about lots of stars. I want to talk about your success in the All Star Game. It's a collection of the stars of the stars. And you are the second all your second all time in All Star Game home runs. Why do you think you excelled so much in that setting? I loved All Star Games. Um, I loved the competition. I loved the that big stage. I mean, we don't back then we didn't see National League guys. Yeah. You might see them in spring training, but there was no interleague play. So I didn't get to see Tom Seaver or Steve Carlton or Randy Johnson, um, they were in the other league. And so now uh, we're, we're playing wherever we're playing. And you get to face these guys. Oh, this is great. Um, and I'm facing Tom Seaver. The, this is the ultimate in coolness as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Another so, USC guy, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I, I really – uh, enjoyed that atmosphere. I, I enjoyed being with my other American League teammates. You know, it's fun to play with the best guys and have them all on one team. Um, that was really fun. Uh, but the competition itself, uh, you know, there was a big rivalry between the American League and National League. It meant something. The American League president would call us before the game. Ah, we got to win this game, buddy. You know, we're, we're tired of losing to these National League guys. And it was very separate, the, the two leagues. So, you know, it meant something. There was a pride factor. And I wanted to do well. I, I wanted to play well against the best guys. I mean, that's how I grade myself. Yeah. How do you do against those guys? And so I, I, I focused. Uh, and, you know, it's early July. I mean, I'm only 170 something pounds, so I hadn't lost all that weight yet. <laughs> so I was still pretty strong. And it was it was just a, a great time. I, I love those games. Talk about the, the All-Star Game in 83, first uh, Grand Slam in All-Star Game history. Uh, what do you remember about that? Well, we that was my ninth uh, 
all-star game and we'd lost every one. And they, I think they had beaten us. Oh gosh. 11 out of 12, something like that. But their team was the same team every year. Same guys seemed like. And so they were used to it. Whereas American league was kind of in flux. We were getting a lot of young guys coming in. And when you play in your first all-star game, it's, it's pretty daunting. It's pretty daunting. Believe me, especially like my first game, I'm playing with Henry Aaron. I mean, how cool was that? Yeah. Uh, so those are the kinds of things you have to put aside because you get to play a game. Uh, so, and it was in Chicago, my hometown, where I was born in Chicago. I had a lot of relatives going to the game. And um, they walked Robin Yount to load the bases to get to me. Well, <laughs> you know, that's like, what am I, chopped liver here? I understood <laughs> the the strategy in Herzog, I think was the manager then. And because Atley Hamaker was on the mound. And if you look at his ERA coming into the game, it was like 1.2 or something. It was, it was nuts. And we faced him in spring training and he was nasty. So I, I get it. But um, yeah, I got the count to two and two and he had, a, he, I swung and missed two curveballs early in the count. And that's two, two. I know he's going to throw that curveball. This the lefties want to strike you out with a curveball. They just do. And he threw it and I didn't miss it this time. And when I hit it, that put us up seven to one and I knew we were going to win. And I pumped my fist and I never did that running around the bases. And it was just, uh, it was pandemonium in the dugout because all of us that had gone through the, the long spell of, of losing, you know, we knew we were going to win. And, and if you look it up, Ever since that game, the American League has dominated the Nationals. Yeah, that was that was one certainly that that flipped the script uh, a lot. So, the Sporting News once wrote that you had a really good chance of being in the Hall of Fame if not for the injuries. And some of those injuries came from you being as aggressive as you were, running into walls and things like that. So, here's my question: With that, I'm not going to ask you if you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I think you do. Uh, but as I said earlier, I'm a Fred Lynn fan from. 75 on what hat would be on your plaque if you got in? Yeah, that's pretty simple. Uh, that would be the Red Sox. Um, they drafted me. They gave me a chance. Um, I came up to the minors with those guys and there's a special bond that you have. I think it, and it I think it happens with every job with guys that are in their early twenties. We're all trying to do, we're all trying to get better. We're all trying to achieve something for the company, in this case, the Red Sox. And we were trying to achieve individual goals as well. Um, but yeah, it would be uh, with the Sox. And to comment as far as do I deserve it? And am I worthy? Listen, I was, like I said earlier, I was always <laughs> the best in my sport. And it, it really never changed uh, once I got to the big leagues. Um, I was always in that conversation, but I'm not a big guy. And so, you know, playing 162 games, which I was never able to do, um, was, was difficult. And I did get injured. There's no question about it. And that kept me from playing games. And the only thing that kept me out of the Hall of Fame is games played. Because if I play the games, I'm going to put up numbers. I mean, that's just the way it is. I, 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 can, I can't say it any more succinctly than that. It's just the way I've always been. And th then it just takes, all those things just kind of take care of themselves. Um, am I disappointed? No, I, <clears throat> I, I did the 
I did the best that I could with what I had. And I'm, I'm proud of the fact that pound for pound, you know, uh, yeah, I think you want me on your team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I have a somewhere in a, in a box in the basement. I have an old Red Sox hat that still smells like beer from wearing it to Yankee Stadium. <laughs> so I thank you for some good memories I'm from Kansas City. And I'm a Royals fan first, but Red Sox are my second team. So L- last question for you before I, I do my wrap up question. You played with an awful lot of people, awful lot of teammates in your 17 years. I'm not going to ask you to name every one of every one of your favorites, but who sticks out in your mind as favorite teammates? Well, because as I mentioned previously, Jimmy Rice and I go way back. We were 21 years old uh, playing together. And I remember in double A, I, I see him out there and he's a big dude. I'm going, oh man, hope he doesn't run into me. And, uh, <laughs> So we, we just hit it off and we played next to each other in the outfield and we usually hit three, four in the lineup. Sometimes he'd hit ahead of me, but most of the time I hit, hit ahead of him. And uh, we just had this bond and then we became the gold dust twins. Um, <laughs> and we've, we've always been that. And if, if I, I might not see him for a year or two and uh, I'll see him in a, uh, in a function or something. Hey, Hey twin, how you doing? And so we have this, this, bond um that's it's unbreakable and it's undeniable so you know i play with a lot of guys and and carl too was a good friend and and i mean i can go down the list of teams that, that were good friends that i still see today but uh you know jimmy really stands out uh because of of that 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 bond that we have uh and and i'm gonna go back there this summer and we'll play golf together and we'll team up and take on the young guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I always like to look, wrap up with, with this one question and I get all different kinds of answers to it. Um, you know, some people think specifically of their sport. Some people think beyond the sport. So you can answer it however you want. What is your legacy? Well, it, I, that's an interesting question. It's never one that I've been asked before. So I thought about it and to my sport, and it's, it's kind of weird because I, I did some things that people would remember, but my legacy is that I got padding on the walls. You know, the, today's players, um, they when they go to a, a, a ballpark, they just automatically think that uh, whatever wall is out there, there's padding on it. And, you know, they can run into it, they look at it. But I was the guy that was responsible for that. Um, because in 1975, during game six uh, of the World Series, I mean, the whole country is watching. The commissioner of baseball is there. Everybody of importance is there watching. We've got senators. I would be surprised if the president wasn't watching. Well, game six, I run into the green monster, Ken Griffey Sr., hits a ball in the gap, and I'm trying to run it down. Well, the green monster is called that for a reason. It was concrete concrete and I hit that thing going full speed and down I went and I thought I broke my back because I lost all feeling uh, from the waist down and so that was a pretty scary moment and everyone saw it and they're thinking well here's a guy that's having a pretty good year and we could he could be dead <laughs> and so it's, since it was such a visible moment and I remember what 30,000 35,000 people you could hear a pen drop so after that, the next year, 
um, owners started putting padding on the wall. It took them a while to get it done correctly, but they did it. And so that one play really helped a lot of uh, outfielders uh, and actually infielders too, because they even pad the railings now uh, along the baselines so that uh, they're worried, you know, they're, they're concerned about injuries uh, from running into things. But prior to me, because games weren't on TV much, uh, there were lots of guys I'm sure that were like me. But that play, that put it on the map, boy. You know, we don't want to lose somebody of, of that caliber uh, where he's trying to make a great play and then something catastrophic happens. So really, that one moment in time is the reason that fences and walls are padded. That's that's I did not know that. I, I was not many times I can project what the answer is going to be to that question. I was not expecting that one, and I did not uh, know that uh, that particular fact. So that's interesting. You know, it's I was talking to um, um, Hal McRae's son the other the other day doing a thing. And we were talking about, and I actually I did, I interviewed Dennis Leonard, former Royals pitcher, Dennis Leonard, who I'm sure. I know who he is. I faced him. Yeah. And we were talking about, talking about how the, the game has changed. And there was in the 76 uh, playoffs, George Brett slid into third base, Greg Nettles tagged him too hard and they came to blows and they were exchanging punches. They not only didn't get suspended, they didn't even have to leave the game. And I'm thinking about the fact that you thought your back was broken and you were still in the on-deck circle later in the bottom of the 12 <laughs> when Carlton Fisk came up. Our players, and I, I always like to end with the legacy question, but I can't not ask this. Are, were players tougher in your day? I don't think they were, they, they were allowed to be tougher. They were allowed to play the game the way we thought it was be played by, actually by men. Um, so, yeah, uh, there were we're trying to win <laughs> and it, money was not significant then. Winning was significant. Right. So, yeah, things happened. Uh, I mean, we played the uh, Yankees and there were blows all the time. Yeah. But the, the game has changed so that they're so worried about guys getting injured. You can't take a guy out of second base. I mean, you can't even slide. I saw a guy they're wearing rubber spikes now. Are you kidding me? Um, you can't take out a catcher at home plate if he blocks the plate. There's so many, you can't pitch inside, really. So if you put you put some of those good Kansas City teams, and they had some good teams, really based on speed, kind of like St. Louis, you know, playing on the rug, speed, 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 speed. One or two guys can bop the ball, but they were speed oriented clubs and very aggressive. If you take those aggressive type teams from the 70s or 60s or nah, so much 80s and play against today's players with our rules, oh my gosh, it would be a mismatch. Yeah. Because these guys haven't been allowed to be tough. Yeah. You know, they're said, so, no, you can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? Well, <laughs> for us, for us, you know, Georgia Breton, I know Georgia really well. And if you, you see him or talk to him, tell him I said, hey. I will. But, you know, I got hurt in an all-star game in 81 because I tried to take out the shortstop with a roll block and I, I cross body block, like in football. And I, I injured my knee and I have it operated on after the end of the year. 
And that's the way we played. You know, it was no holds barred, but everybody accepted it. Yeah. And so, you know, if you got a little upset once in a while, hey, okay, brush it off and go get them. <laughs> yeah, I think of your former teammate, Don Baylor. I don't know that he ever charged the mound, but if he got hit by a pitch, look out shortstop because he was yeah, stealing well, second. Right. See, there were ways to get even without yeah. charging the mound. And if yeah. a guy knocked me down, I, you know, I tried to hurt him by scoring. Or if I, if I got hit, I'm on first base. I want Jimmy to hit a, a chopper because I'm taking somebody out. Yeah. And if, if somebody's blocking a plate and not giving me an avenue to get to the plate, I'm coming in. Yeah. If you give me an avenue, I'll take it. But if you don't, I'm taking you out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fred, I love talking baseball with, with people who played the game. Uh, as I mentioned a couple of times, I've been a fan for years and years. It's good to catch up with you again. And I appreciate you being on the show. Well, thanks, David. It's always good talking baseball. And uh, like I said, I, I'm a KC fan too, and I'm a really George Brett fan. So, and you see, see him or talk to him, uh, give him a shout out for me and uh, take care of yourself and enjoy the rest of the year. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. 